Welcome to the AWS Tech Chat. Your hosts, Ollie, Dean, and Dr. Pete. We're solution architects based in APAC, and we help customers adopt the AWS Cloud Platform. In each episode, we talk about the latest and most interesting technical developments in the world of AWS Cloud. We bring you the AWS Roundup and deep tech dives into topics of interest. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to AWS Tech Chat. It's Dr. Pete here, and today with me, I have Dean Samuels. Dean, how are you doing? I'm doing very well, thanks, Dr. Pete. Great to be here. Uh, How's things on your side? Very well. After taking some time off, as uh, you guys may have noticed, I missed one episode. It was the first time I've ever missed an episode here of Tech Chat. Uh, So I did actually listen to it when I was washing the car the other day. So uh, you and all did a spectacular job. Uh, That's an interesting way to to listen to the Tech Chat there, (laughs) uh, washing the car. I I hear other people, uh, you know, uh, uh, listen to the tech chat at the gym and on the way to work. So it's a very convenient way to be uh, to be uh, kept up to date on things happening at uh, Amazon Web Services. And some even shovel snow in North America. But yeah. we have a very broad listener base. So, uh, so I actually traveled through Austria and Ollie and I had a discussion a couple of shows ago about uh, the confusion between Austria and Australia. And uh, I must tell you guys that uh, when I was there, uh, they even sell signs, mind you, to tourists that actually say there are no kangaroos in Austria. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> so the joke does actually spread pretty far. So right. Dina, we're here in sunny Melbourne and normally we record the show remotely. Uh, so the internet is uh, our friend here. Uh, and um, you know, you've been here for the week with me and I'm really pleased to have you on the, uh, the office in the Melbourne office. Yeah, it's been uh, actually fantastic to be able to work with you uh, this week, uh, Dr. Pete. I know uh, we haven't actually seen each other face to face for quite some time. Yeah, so uh, to to have the opportunity to work with you and then also do the the tech chat uh, in the same room uh, should be uh, interesting session absolutely and uh you know one thing i must share with you uh with you guys and uh you have certainly discovered this and that is melbourne has this unusual thing about it and that is that we have four seasons every single day yeah absolutely i've definitely experienced that uh, over the last week uh, i probably should have known better packing my clothes when i was uh, uh in hong kong uh, i know there is a saying that uh, if you don't like the weather in melbourne just mm-hmm. wait five minutes uh, definitely experienced that. Uh, uh, before I left Hong Kong, I actually asked my uh, Amazon Echo device what the weather was like in Melbourne. Told me it was a nice uh, balmy 25 degrees Celsius. Mm-hmm. So uh, packed uh, sort of the light clothes clothing. Got here. It was actually quite a nice balmy 25 degrees Celsius at the start of the week, but definitely got a bit colder towards the end of the week. Absolutely. Uh, so spending a lot of time indoors. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. So that's uh, you know, a whole bunch of different weather patterns. And one of the weather patterns that we actually know at AWS really well is CloudFront. So yeah. Dean, you want to update our listeners on what's been happening? And certainly I'm keen to hear because I have been away for a little bit. So uh, yeah, what yeah, have you been doing there? Absolutely. So uh, I, I know when you know we take breaks, uh, Dr. Pete, uh, the world doesn't stop spinning. Uh, nope. Amazon doesn't stop innovating, right? No. So, um, and Amazon Web Services doesn't stop expanding. In the last episode, uh, I actually mentioned about the region expansion uh, into the Middle East, mm-hmm. um, specifically into Bahrain. Uh, but uh, we've also announced since then uh, some uh, additional expansions uh, with our uh, edge services. Um, so uh, just to take a step back and explain what I mean by the edge uh, edge services, um, we have a service called Amazon CloudFront. Um, Amazon CloudFront is our content delivery network or a CDN. Essentially, it's a globally distributed network of uh, proxy servers which cache content and accelerate access uh, to static and dynamic uh, web content for uh, for users. Now, because they're globally distributed, it really allows access to that content as if it was more local mm-hmm. to the user's um, location. 
Um, and so what we've actually done is we've expanded the number of edge locations uh, across different across additional points of presence in the Nordics, in Western Europe, and also the US. And what that actually means is we've now got over sorry we've now got 90, 98 uh, edge locations over fifty cities and across twenty three countries. Wow, you blink and uh, we just keep adding these like uh, it's like mushrooms after uh, you know uh, rain on a summer on a summer exactly. summer day. Yes. Absolutely. So what else have we done with uh, with Cloudfront? Because Cloudfront also has brought along you know our um, our web service, which is the web application firewall. Uh, mechanisms that actually help customers protect the web assets. Uh, what have we added in that space? Because there's been some really exciting announcements lately. Yeah, we have definitely in this space uh, there, Dr. Pete. Uh, so you mentioned that the AWS WAF, uh, the Web Application Firewall Service. So it's a service that does integrate with some of our other services, offering mm -hmm. cer uh, certain uh, protections um, and uh, 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 filtering on uh, uh, web traffic that's uh, accessing your um, your web applications. Uh, in the AWS WAF service, we've actually included a new feature which uh, supports uh, what we call geographic match. Mm -hmm. Now, what we mean by a geographic match is you, you basically can restrict application access based on the geographic location of your viewers. Um, so with uh, geographic match conditions, you can choose the countries from which AWS WAF should allow access. So that's geo-blocking, right? Essentially geo-blocking, that's correct. Okay. Nice, nice. And then how do I set that up? What do I do? Uh, so uh, in order to, uh, set, to, to get started with uh, GeoMatch uh, conditions, uh, it's pretty easy. Um, you simply create a GeoMatch condition using the AWS WAF API mm -hmm. or the AWS Management Console and add it to an existing or a new AWS WAF uh, rule. And so basically what will happen then is if a uh, AWS WAF receives a request from the specified country, it will perform the action specified by the rule that you've, indi you've, you've, you've indicated, such as counting the request or, or blocking access and responding with a 403 forbidden HTTP response. Uh, the dreaded 403, I've, se I've seen that many a time. Yes, so uh, yes, if, uh, you may often, often see that if you're trying to access uh, uh, you know, assets on the web that you perhaps meant not to be accessing. Uh, and uh, a lot of people at stream actually hit that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah also, one, one, one additional uh, uh, thing with the, the GeoMatch, it's actually available to customers at uh, no additional charge, uh, just like most of the other AWS WAF uh, features. You only really pay for what you use, and there are no upfront fees fees or minimum monthly uh, commitments. Awesome. I, I, I like free. Yep. No, no additional costs. Right. And yeah. And you know what, Dr. Peter, doesn't end there. <laughs> We've but there's actually, more. But there oh, is tell. more. There is more. <laughs> what else is there? Um, so one of the other things that we have introduced with, uh, with AWS WAF is Regular expressions. Regex. Uh, I love yeah, regex. regex. Devs absolutely. love they love it. Yeah, it's uh, it's uh, it's really a feature that has been in strong demand by our customers. Um, mm -hmm. Now, maybe give me a chance to explain what I mean by regular expressions absolutely. in uh, in AWS WAF. So, if you think about when you create your rules in your your WAF uh, setup in terms of restricting access based on uh, URLs um, right. uh, in 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 the requests that are coming in. Um, previously, uh, before this feature release, uh, customers would have to be very specific about what type of uh, strings in the URL uh, they would be restricting against. So, for mm -hmm. example, uh, you might uh, restrict against a, a specific word or a specific uh, set of uh, characters that are um, uh, contained in the uh, in the URL or the query string of the request uh, request coming in. With uh, regular expression support, you can now use um, essentially characters which represent a range of uh, strings or a range of different characters. Mm -hmm. So uh, you can basically, uh, um, uh, you, 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 
uh, you can basically um, use these uh, regular expressions to do pattern matching um, within exactly. the strings um, themselves. So it allows a lot more flexibility um, uh, 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 to your to your rules. You can also apply multiple red, uh, regular expression uh, patterns to a single request. Um, this allows you uh, to, for example, uh, block requests that m match uh, multiple uh, different uh, strings or mm -hmm. uh, character sets. Uh, once created, regular expression patterns can be reused across multiple WAF rules, allowing you to look for the same expression across different parts of a web, requ web request, mm -hmm. such as the uh, header, the query string, or the body. And that's really useful because uh, you don't want to necessarily apply these you know, regular expression checks on every single request. So mm -hmm. for example, uh, you know, you might want to apply them for, for say a PHP request, which produces dynamic content, but yep. if you're going to hit like a JPEG or a GIF or some static assets, they're, they're probably not as applicable. I e guess. Exactly right, exactly. So uh, like I said before, it really allows that extra uh, flexibility uh, and customization with your uh, with your rules with the AWS WAF service. And uh, just like before, uh, offered at no additional charge as well. Awesome, and uh, again, if you're a Perl fan, like I said, uh, devs love uh, regular expressions. Uh, the uh, the Perl compatible regular expressions format, the PCR, is actually what we've actually uh, used as part of the actual uh, rules engine. So for those of you that know it, uh, this should hopefully be just a, a walk in the park to add to your uh, your web layer as a rule. Awesome, Absolutely. love it. But yep. Dean, there's always more, right? There's we always, always have more. more. <laughs> and you know, we're talking about security in flight here with WAF to make mm -hmm. sure you protect our assets, but what about security when we need to deal with data at rest. Data at rest, absolutely. It's uh, important to uh, take into consideration when you are applying your security controls, specifically around encryption, mm -hmm. that you are applying it uh, for different states that the data may be in, like you mentioned, uh, so security in transit, as well as uh, security at rest when it's actually stored on some type of storage uh, storage service or storage system. Right. Now, as our, our listeners know, we have uh, the uh, Amazon EBS uh, volumes, uh, which is essentially your uh, virtual storage devices that attach to your Amazon EC2 instances. Mm -hmm. uh, and we've uh, for a while now, we've actually had support uh, to encrypt uh, the, to allow users to encrypt the EBS volumes on the EC2 Very important instances. feature, yes, customers absolutely. love it. Absolutely, yeah, just by a click of a button or an API call, you can uh, automatically have that encryption of your data at rest in the EBS volumes. What we've actually announced is that uh, for specifically our EC2 spot uh, uh, instances, mm -hmm. um, you can now encrypt your EBS volumes at launch time. Nice. Yeah, so basically what that means is that uh, regardless if the uh, the AMI, the Amazon machine image uh, that has uh, that is being used to launch the EC2 spot instance, regardless if it's been encrypted or not when it was created, you can actually uh, to uh, toggle through a, mm -hmm. a switch with uh, the API call with EC2 spot to have the spot instance uh, uh, automatically encrypt the EBS volume at launch time. Cool, so but if I've already got an encrypted um, you know, snapshot that I'm launching my instance from, what happens then? So if you already have an encrypted EBS volume in use, then the, then specify the snapshot ID without the encrypted flag, mm -hmm. and Spot will continue to create encrypted volumes in your existing encrypted ah, EBS excellent. snapshot. So basically we just, you know, if it's already been encrypted and we're launching with it, yep. you'll continue to be encrypted, but this is a feature for brand new volumes that are actually unencrypted. Exactly right, Great. absolutely. And available in all regions too. Wow. Love it, I love it, I love it guys. <laughs> yes. So, so 
So we, we, we spoke about uh, EC2 uh, yeah. instances, uh, you know, obviously a service that's been around for quite some time, very popular with mm. our, uh, our customers. Um, you know, we have uh, EC2 uh, support for both Windows and Linux, mm -hmm. but I hear that we've also expanded support for Windows into other services as well. We have, like LightSail. And for those of you who haven't used LightSail, I highly encourage you to use it. LightSail basically is a, is a way of spinning up, you know, infrastructure, so instances really, really quickly. So if you um, want a really low end um, cost effective price, so in other words, you know, EC2 you pay by the second now, as you guys would have heard last show, uh, LightSail is actually a service that lets you run virtually what often people refer to as a virtual private server. So, so LightCell, as of now, supports Amazon, uh, supports uh, Windows. Used to be Amazon Linux only and a few other distributions, but now you can run Windows. And, and you guys all probably know that I'm a big Microsoft fan, so uh, <laughs> I'm gonna hijack this and say, now you can actually run a Windows um, you know, server starting at $10 per month, which includes all the server licenses, you get you know, uh, minimum starting at that price is 30 gigs of storage, which is all SSD, and you get one terabyte of data transfer out of uh, that instance. So you can actually host a heck of a lot of stuff, and my son loves his LightCell instance because he actually does have one, and he runs his personal blog on it. So right. uh, he used to run Minecraft servers, uh, on EC2, now he's going to be hopefully moving them to uh, LightSail. That's great. So, uh, yeah, and I'm a big fan of the Amazon LightSail service. It's really a way for customers to uh, to quickly deploy their, like you mentioned, their virtual private service mm -hmm. with a, a, a packaged offering in terms of storage and networking transfers, yeah. transfer transfer costs, and, and also now a, a Windows server license included by launching our Windows variations of LightSail. Yeah, and look, we support Windows Server 2016, Windows Server 2012 R2, uh, and we also support Windows Server 2016 with SQL Server Express. Right so you can even run SQL Server. Yeah, it, it's all included. So uh, look, yeah, it's available in uh, all AWS regions that have light cells available to them. That's fantastic. So you mentioned that you are a, uh, uh, a Microsoft uh, a yeah, fan. Now, you've obviously, um, you know, uh, your, a big part of your career has been working in the Microsoft uh, Developing tools.net, yep. yeah, run times, all the plumbing stuff. Yeah. Right, right. So I can imagine when you came back from holidays and you saw a few of the announcements you uh, around what we're doing with Microsoft, you probably were very excited and I'm sure there's more that you wanted to tell us about. <laughs> <laughs> there are, in fact, I was very excited. So you guys may have been tracking Microsoft SQL Server. They've just released SQL Server 2017. And if you actually read the fine print, uh, you would have actually found out that it now runs not just on, win on Windows, it runs on other platforms. So now, for those of you who haven't had a chance to try 2017, you know, it has lots of extra features, uh, such as you know, the ability to be able to run graph databases, um, automatically uh, tune itself, uh, and also go, uh, you know, uh, build clusters with always-on available group. Now, the cool thing is, like I said, it now runs off Windows, and that is, Linux, and you can also Dockerize it, which is absolutely wow, out of this that's world. That's pretty cool. Uh, um, you know, you're a, you're a Microsoft person. I'm a Linux uh, Linux yeah. guy, so <laughs> to hear that, uh, you know, we can now uh, very easily deploy uh, SQL Server onto Linux uh, environments, and also go as far as containers, Docker mm. containers. Uh, that's going to allow our customers to very quickly uh, provision uh, SQL Server in the environment or the platform they choose. Exactly. So again, we give you choice, and Microsoft's doing the same thing with uh, SQL Server now. Uh, far more than before. So if you want to run uh, 2017 SQL Server on EC2, you certainly can. So you can run um, Windows Server 2016, and there are four uh, for the operating system. And we also provide you with four editions of SQL Server 2017, that is the web, Express, 
standard and enterprise editions. Right. Um, these are also available in Amazon Machine Images in the Amy's. So these are available in all regions already today. Uh, and these will run on a variety of EC2 instance types, including our brand new X1E32 XL with 128 vCPUs and almost four terabytes of memory. That's amazing. So essentially you can run your uh uh, preferred Linux uh, distribution mm -hmm. um, and the, on a, uh, a four terabyte uh, memory virtual machine yeah. and deploy SQL Server onto it. That's uh, that's pretty cool. Yeah, so, yeah. So, so those platforms actually include uh, Red Hat Linux uh, 7.3 uh, and 7.4, which is Workstation, Server and Desktop Editions, SUSE Enterprise Linux, V12 SB2, Ubuntu uh, 16 LTS, and like I said earlier, Docker Engine 1.8 or greater on Windows, Mac, and Linux. Wow. Okay. Which is pretty right. cool. So if you want to do that, uh, you will at least need a three and three point two five gigabytes of memory to run SQL Server on any of those uh, operating systems, including Windows. Uh, but if you do actually want to Dockerize it, it probably should have four gig of RAM, just that extra headroom sure. uh, for the virtualization fabric, uh, and it only takes about six gigs of disk space. Right. Right. Which is okay. totally totally minimalistic. And so, so you, you mentioned how it's very easy to uh, deploy uh, the, the SQL Server um, database onto these variations of operating systems mm -hmm. and also Docker containers. What about from a licensing perspective? So what would be the licensing options available? That is a very important question and lots of Microsoft folks always think about that next after the uh, whatever they want to do next. So you can take the, the, the common path, which is pay as you go. Now this works really well because it helps you, helps you avoid paying any particular licenses and uh, you don't have to worry about true ups or software compliance audits or software assurance. Um, and uh, you know, if you are actually launching it on EC2 uh, with those Amazon machine images, you actually get that benefit. And uh, in, in the past, we've also uh, been able to reduce, uh, you know, give you some savings of up to 52% um, if you're actually running SQL Server Standard Edition as well. So have a look at your workloads, have a look at uh, where you want to deploy it, whether it's on EC2. Now, if you do have uh, you know, a Microsoft agreement, and many of our customers already do have those, uh, uh, you can actually apply license mobility. Uh, and this option lets you use your existing um, software assurance agreements uh, and bring your existing licenses to EC2. So that way you basically can you know, run SQL Server on Windows or on Linux. Uh, and uh, the other option also that's available to you is to be able to um, bring your own licenses. So if you've already got a particular license for that particular uh, you know, infrastructure, that server, uh, you can basically exercise that on EC2. So you can run it on EC2 dedicated instances or EC2 dedicated hosts. Um, which also has the potential to reduce your um, your operating costs uh, because you essentially in this case you'll be billed uh, well charged technically complying with the uh, per core basis licensing. Wow, that's so, a, again a, a, a lot of choice and uh, options for our for our customers from a licensing perspective, um, mm. in addition to where they want to run their uh, SQL SQL Server. Uh, as well. So um, obviously, uh, Dr. Pete will have uh, customers, uh, a large number of customers who currently do run uh, SQL Server in Windows environments, whether Absolutely. it's on-premise or uh, perhaps in, uh, in AWS. Mm -hmm. So what would be the options in terms of, or what would be the process to, to migrate uh, from their existing platform if they want to now look at deploying into uh, Linux, uh, SQL Server running on Linux or SQL Server running in containers? It's actually really, really simple. So once you bring up, uh, brought up your SQL Server either via container or on the, uh, you know, I'll call it off Windows platforms because mm. there's so many of them. Yep. Um, all you have to do is go in, essentially create a backup of your existing database, copy it to the 
EC2 instance or wherever you want to, uh, you know, whether the actual um, SQL Server is running, and do a restore on a Linux machine, that's and you're done. Wow, that's that's impressive. So basically, what you're saying is you're moving to a different underlying operating system or a mm -hmm. different underlying platform for SQL Server to run on, but there's no transformation or conversion actually required. You're essentially just doing a backup and then a restore. That's it. It's a, it's, it's about as technical as it gets. <laughs> now, if you want to get technical, so a little sidebar here. So SQL Server 2017 has actually been reworked, reworked quite significantly. And um, what they've done, and they've done this before for a num number of services, uh, and I guess products in their portfolio, is they've built a platform abstraction layer. And that platform does all the, all the magic which sort of hides the underlying platform and makes Linux look, look pretty much as close as possible to Windows. So the core part of SQL Server remains the same. It's just a very small slither of code underneath that infrastructure that actually you know, abstracts a physical operating system. So in this case, it's right. Linux. Right. And that's it. So the secret sauce really was to uh, put more abstractions in there. Mm -hmm. uh, for those of you who are familiar with .NET uh, and how the uh, .NET Core runtime works, uh, and uh, it's a very similar model. There's a platform abstraction layer which abstracts the platform just enough mm -hmm. to make sure that the core bit of code that actually runs the application uh, does its job. So yeah, it was... Pretty, pretty cool, very smart, but uh, yeah. Right. And very and exciting. <laughs> and uh, to take your phrase from before, I, I hear there is more, but wait, there but is there more. But there is more, yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I know you're excited to talk a little bit more about uh, sort of what Microsoft is doing in the developer space. Uh, yes. So can you tell us a little bit about uh, about that? Yeah, so developers, developers, developers. Um, so if you are a Visual Studio developer on Windows, you can still talk to uh, SQL Server running on Linux, just like it does on Windows. Uh, and hopefully most of you would know this, uh, is that you need to make sure that you have the SQL Server data tools installed uh, which is actually a checkbox feature when you install Visual Studio in your dev environment, which actually happens to be running on Windows. Now, if you have chosen a different path and you use uh, Visual Studio code on non-Windows non, um, platform, so you're actually off Windows, uh, so Visual Studio Core is a great IDE for working on Linux, Mac, OS, a whole bunch of different platforms. You just have to go into the tool and, and, and auto-install the MSSQL extension for Visual Studio Co Core, and it, it will automatically give you all of the functionality required to be able to connect to uh, SQL Server on Linux. And if you happen to be on a Mac, uh, you probably already noticed, but if you don't, make sure you have OpenSSL installed, um, and uh, that's often installed via Brew. Um, so yeah, uh, once you've got that, you can then go and hit that SQL Server on Linux. Uh, in fact, from any platform, you can hit it. So it looks transparent to the actual applications. And what I also like about this is that uh, it's really simple to deploy SQL Server now. It's actually a single line. So it's as simple as saying sudo to go admin and go app get install and a package name called MSSQL Server or MSSQL Server. Uh, integration services. So they also support integration services uh, on SQL Server on Linux. Right, yeah, and that, that's the question I was going to ask. You know, as I mentioned, I've got a, a Linux background, and one of the great things I like about uh, Linux platforms and the ones that you, the Linux distributions you mentioned earlier is that uh, it's essentially these single line of uh, commands that allow you to uh, deploy some very sophisticated um, uh, applications. I know you can do something similar with some other databases. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like uh, we're following the same model with uh, SQL, Microsoft SQL server in that uh, just effectively a couple of lines of uh, uh, commands will allow you to deploy this SQL server on the totally. Linux platform. Yeah, it's really cool. And you know, I, I love one single like command line instructions to deploy, install something, and that the package managers take care of all my dependencies and things like that. Um, that's certainly been the open source model for a while and the, the Linux model. 
um, on the Microsoft platform. A lot of developers are probably familiar with something called Chocolatey, mm -hmm. where it's a package manager, which also right. is great for deploying some of these things. So yeah, it's it's you know all you know all new things are old again, right? <laughs> so uh, we, we kind of model of you know really simplistic examples of you know being productive. Uh, it's really great to see that happening here too. Sure, sure. And 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 what I'm really like hearing here, uh, Dr. Pete, is that you know Microsoft is providing uh, uh, all of these. Uh, developer applications, SQL Server, you mentioned about .NET Core, mm -hmm. um, making all of these available across different operating systems. And yeah. again, it comes back to the fact that it's giving customers a real choice of how they're actually going to configure and deploy their various uh, applications. Yeah, and they've gone pretty far, you know, because they also provide, you know, language support and drivers for SQL Server in this case. So, you know, yes, you can do it in C Sharp, you can do it in Java, you can do it in PHP, you can also do it in Node.js. Python, Ruby, and C++, and you can use those languages across Windows, Linux, and Mac OS. Right. So there's a lot of breadth. So you have lots of choice as a developer of, of how to go about building applications, uh, which libraries to use. And now, with the move to uh, SQL Server and Linux, the database can now also move um, you know, off Windows into you know, other operating systems. Great. And so, uh one, one of the things that uh, I'm very familiar with in a, in a Linux world is when you are looking at sharing uh, or accessing shared file systems, uh, mm -hmm. we use the network file system, uh, typically the network sure. file system protocol. Uh, now that we have uh, SQL Server deployed on Linux that might be accessing some type of shared file system through the NFS protocol, mm -hmm. can I do that? Will that work? Yes, look, you certainly can. And look, for those of you who are very intimate with how SQL Server works on Windows, yes, it is very tied in closely with the NTFS file system, which is the Windows file system. Um, but with the move to Linux, uh, they do support having it running on, on NFS, but it has to be version 4.2 or higher. Uh, the older versions aren't supported, mainly because you need to f uh, more modern file system functions like uh, F-allocate and sparse, sparse file creations, uh, which are generally available in the more modern version of uh, NFS implementations uh, to support uh, to be supported. The other thing to also think about is that you need to ensure that the NFS client that you use, wherever you're running SQL Server on that node, uh, use the no lock option when mounting remote shares. And there are also a couple of little gotchas around where you should and shouldn't, uh, in terms of mount points, be actually putting MS SQL Server. So uh, look, if you go through the documentation, I won't bore you with the actual details, uh, but yeah, it's it's actually very straightforward. The, the, uh, the um, the things you need to be aware of are very simple, and because you can containerize it, um, a lot of this stuff just simply goes away. Well, well I'll tell you what, uh, Dr. Pete, it's uh, Friday right now when we're recording this uh, podcast. I think I've got a busy weekend ahead uh, deploying <laughs> my SQL Server on Linux or SQL Server in containers uh, uh, environments. Uh, it's going to be great to be able to test this out. Yeah, and there's a lot of cool stuff happening in the you know EC2 container registry space, and I think you know you've got a few things you can share with us on that. Absolutely, good segue there. Absolutely, <laughs> see, what, see what we need there, guys. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, so yeah, you know, talking about uh, MS SQL uh, in in containers uh, that is now supported. Um, we have a a service as we know called the uh, Amazon EC2 container service or Amazon ECS. Mm -hmm. And so effectively this allows uh, our customers uh, and users of the platform to run uh, Docker-based containers uh, in a manageable way and using uh, orchestration tools provided by the Amazon ECS service. Mm -hmm. Now coupled with the Amazon ECS service, we have an additional, additional service called the Amazon EC2 container registry. 
And what the uh, uh, container registry really allows our customers to do is it makes it easy for them to store, manage, and deploy uh, Docker container images. So effectively, our customers can build a library of uh, images, Docker images, that they may want to use throughout their various environments. And that's similar to like, you know, Docker Hub. Yes, which exactly. Most people would also know. Yeah, exactly right. Mm-hmm. Just like Docker Hub. So what we've actually announced is uh, the ability for uh, uh, for customers and users of of the Amazon EC2 container registry service to apply lifecycle policies to their uh, Docker images that are effectively their library. So just like uh, Amazon S3 lifecycle mm. life policies where you can actually uh, define rules to uh, the, the amount of time you want to retain objects in S3, yep. with Amazon uh, EC2 container registry, you can define rules um, specifying how long you want to retain your images. So it's a really great way to automatically clean up and also maintain your uh, your registry so you don't it get, it doesn't explode with all these hundreds or thousands of different images yeah. that you might not be using anymore. Awesome, and, and look, a lot of people actually suffer from having a bloat of having too many <laughs> images. Yes, absolutely. And with you know, all this automation with continuous you know, integration and delivery, you know, a lot of you know, uh, CI/CD pipelines create a lot of containers, mm-hmm. and it can be very hard to figure out which one's which. And I've seen people try to manually do this. Yep. Uh-uh, bad move, they're often scripted. So this is basically, a, maybe make those scripts a little bit redundant now. Yeah, exactly right. So you know, it's, it's really uh, another example of uh, AWS uh, taking away that undifferentiated heavy lifting from mm-hmm. our customers. So our customers can really focus on how to optimize and build their own uh, images rather than the maintenance of those images in the Amazon EC2 container registry. Very, very cool. So, so Dean, so we've talked about SQL Server, so there's a lot of Microsoft stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've talked about S3, you just mentioned S3. Um, there's something else that you, you wanted, you were pretty excited about sharing with us um, <laughs> yep. that actually merges those two together. Yeah, you know, we, we always want to uh, provide uh, op- uh, options and um, uh, tools to, to customers to allow them to move between platforms. You know, we always mm-hmm. want to give customers freedom of choice, uh, whatever works best for them and their use case and their biz- business requirements. And so sometimes one of the very tricky uh, things to do when you are looking at migrating from one platform to another is how do you migrate the data? How do you migrate yeah. the database um, from the source to the destination? Now, a while back, we actually introduced the AWS Database Migration Service, or DMS. Mm -hmm. And as the name suggests, it was basically a tool that allowed customers to migrate their on-premise or off-cloud database environment into AWS. Uh, The source database could be the same as the target database. So for example, you might be moving from uh, SQL Server, as we're using SQL SQL Server Server as an example, Mm -hmm. SQL Server on-premise to SQL Server uh, in the cloud. But it also allowed you, uh, with some additional features, to actually migrate to different database engines as well. And that, that was awesome. When yeah. I saw that announcement, I was like, yes, this is cool. I can go from almost anything to anything. Absolutely. You know, the schema conversion tool that's uh, uh, coupled with this yeah. uh, really makes it much easier for customers, for example, to move from a uh, on-premise uh, database that they might be running to something like uh, um, uh, MS, uh, Microsoft SQL Server in the cloud, uh, whether it's uh, um, Aurora, Aurora or, or other things, right? And that's yeah. the other one, right? Yeah. So even moving to some of our own uh, database engines like Aurora. So what we've actually done is expanded the support of the different sources that you can actually migrate from uh, using the AWS database migration service. Um, So you actually can uh, migrate uh, from not only um, uh, databases like like, uh, uh, SQL Server, but also Azure SQL database as a source. Uh But the other one is it doesn't actually have to be a database. 
So if you uh, actually have your data stored in Amazon S3, the AWS database migration service actually allows you to easily migrate that data in S3 to your database engine of choice. Cool, so I've got a data lake sitting in S3, I can now suck that in potentially yep. and move it into a database of my choice. Exactly right, and so this really opens up both cloud vendor mobility and database mobility for our customers as well. Wow, that's that's super exciting. Mm -hmm. More and more sources. So we're going to hopefully get one day to you know star to star, which is anything to anything. Anything to anything. That'll be yeah. very cool. Just by the push of a button. <laughs> <laughs> so then when I was away uh, and I came back to this awesome thing where we now you know bill for EC2 at the one second increment, not yep. the sixty minutes that it used to be. That's so last month. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> There's also some exciting stuff around Redshift, and we're talking about databases. So let's keep going. So. Redshift and DC2. What is DC2? Yeah, so uh, DC2 is actually our, a, a new next generation uh, uh, instance type uh, that we have. It basically stands for dense computer nodes mm -hmm. for DC. Uh, so we've introduced this next generation instance type. And as we know, a lot of our services are actually built on other services. So Absolutely. a lot of our services are built on EC2. Mm -hmm. um, so we are constantly expanding the instance types in our EC2 service offering. And so what we're finding is a lot of the services built on top will take advantage of those next generation uh, instance types. So the announcement we've made is that uh, uh, Amazon Redshift now supports the DC2 instance type. Mm -hmm. um, over the, uh, where currently it uses the DC1, the older generation. And so what that basically means, it's now twice the performance of DC1, right. but actually at the same price. Yay! <laughs> awesome. Yeah, so uh, you know we've, we've now tuned uh, Amazon Redshift to leverage the better CPU, the network, uh, and also the disk on uh, those uh, nodes, and that's what really delivers that uh, uh, twice performance uh, uh, at that same price point. Wow, that's, that's, that's awesome. And I think, you know, with the, uh, the DC2 8xx large instances, uh, not only do they have uh, the, you know, the same price as before, but they're twice the memory per slice of data, which is how we actually store, uh, you know, the uh, optimized information in memory. Um, and it's actually uh, got a 30% better storage utilization, which means you get even more oomph in your, uh, your more bang for your buck. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, Dr. Pete, we, obviously we have a lot of customers that would be running Redshift clusters right lots, now. Yeah. Lots of them. So is it easy for them to move to the new instance type, do you think? Pretty straightforward, you know. We talked earlier about, you know, how simple it is to actually, you know, do the SQL Server thing and, you know, migrate. Um, essentially, he just simply need to, uh, so a couple of options, in fact. You can move from DC1 uh, to clusters to simply restore to a new cluster that happens to be a DC2 cluster. Uh, from the snapshots that you've actually already taken. Um, so you can actually migrate to, you know, the, the uh, uh, larger instances as well. Uh, and uh, the nice thing about it is you can do this essentially across all the regions that have DC2 available to them. Great, yep, again, a, a lot of choice and op options for our customers uh, to, to, to move across. And the great thing about it is when they do move across to these new DC2 instance types, uh, you know, the, the, the price point will automatically be applied. Yeah, no, it's great. And you know, we've been talking about you know uh, databases and developers and a whole bunch of stuff. Um, and I'm super excited about DynamoDB. And you know, lots of our developers use DynamoDB. Mm -hmm. It's a great you know um, NoSQL database uh, service which helps many of our customers to scale horizontally uh, when they build you know very successful web applications. Are uh, you know DynamoDB is where they actually turn to because not only is it fast, but it's also cost effective. And yep. we've got some super duper awesome announcements around this, Dean. And uh, that, I got that, that kind of stuff gets me out of bed in the morning. So, <laughs> so you may have heard that. Um, so, so DynamoDB is actually obviously a database. Yep. 
right? Um, and you know, one of the things with databases always is around latency. How fast can I get my data across the network from my database? Uh, so a little while ago, we announced something called Amazon um, you know, DynamoDB Accelerator, called or DAX, D-A-X for short, which is really a fully managed, you know, highly available in-memory cache uh, that you would actually front DynamoDB with. And it actually can give you up to 10 times performance improvement. And what it does also is it also it reduces the, the latency from milliseconds to microseconds. And when you think about what that means, that's actually quite quite substantial you know, boost in performance because you know, you know, we still use you know, web APIs to make connections. So what DAX does, it actually keeps connections open to DynamoDB you know, from that caching layer, uh, and you can actually also connect to it. Now, when we first announced this, it, uh, the SDK we made available to developers was just for Java. Uh, and I'm pleased to say that we've now actually added Node.js, which is actually very cool. Right. So uh, you can now use you know, your Node applications, uh, and this is actually now generally available in two new regions, which is Mumbai and also Sao Paulo. Uh, and it's already been available in Virginia, Ireland, Oregon, Tokyo, and California. And the other nice thing about this, as you said earlier, we keep you know, innovating on the instances Know, the, the Lego blocks, you know, the, the foundations that many other services are based on. And now DAX supports the brand new R4 instances in US East Island, Oregon, Mumbai, and Sao Paulo. And the R4s are really the next generations of the EC2 memory optimized instances. And they alone have twice the cache sizes of the current R3 instances. Right. So you're not only getting a, a boost from the new instance types, uh, right, but you're also getting you know, a huge reduction in latency in terms of your applications are having conversations with uh, DynamoDB and you know it's super duper fast. Yeah I mean it, it's always great to see us uh, see how we're innovating for our customers where we're not really you know releasing a new feature or service stop there and move on to the next one. I mean when Amazon uh, DynamoDB was launched it was launched with speed in mind. It was yeah. actually designed to deliver that millisecond uh, latency to app various applications as a NoSQL uh, database. Mm -hmm. That was uh, a, a, a great service for a lot of our customers use cases but obviously our customers want you know better speed None, I haven't heard a customer asking can you please slow the service That's down right <laughs> <laughs> right so you know they're always wanting to uh, to look at how we can really optimize some of the services we've we've launched and the DAX uh, the the acceleration service really does that and, and like you mentioned now it's even got more uh, options and uh, extensions to it to uh, provide uh, provide uh, these uh, choices to our customers you know it's interesting because we talked you and I talked to a lot of customers and we have over the many years mm -hmm. Uh, so we actually got a, over a decade of combined AWS experience, which is kind of frightening yep. when I think about it. So we've seen a lot of customers. And um, one of the things that we often end up explaining and demystifying AWS through is, you know, what's the future? What are guys going to do next? Mm. And uh, it really comes up to three simple things. When, we, when I talk about it, I'm sure you do the same thing, and that is we give customers things faster, quicker. Mm. Right? No, one wants, no one wants it slower, right? Yeah. We also give it to them you know, at a lower cost, right? I mean, all of these announcements very often you know, are referring to price reductions as well, right? So, so speed, um, you know, performance, but also choice. Yep. And you know, you know, with so many you know, releases every single day, uh, we keep ticking that box. And for me, um, you know, innovation isn't just you know, uh, contained to us, but it's also to the whole marketplace. And there's lots of innovation happening across different industries. And one of them happens to be 
artificial intelligence team. There's a lot of noise in the marketplace around AI. It certainly and is. Everyone, it's like the next gold rush. Yep, absolutely. <laughs> you know, I've got, I've got value in them data mountains somewhere and sitting on my data lake in S3. Mm-hmm. Um, so I want to actually call out something called Gluon, which is uh, an announcement between AWS and Microsoft. And uh, that announcement on Gluon is simply around uh, making it easier for developers uh, to build artificial intelligence. So what that actually stands for is that, you know, lots of deep learning uh, libraries are out there. So this is actually going to be a library um, that is actually called Gluon. It's available in Git, so you can go check it out. And it helps developers of all skills to be able to prototype, build, train, and deploy really sophisticated machine learning models for the cloud. So obviously the training with lots of data, so you need lots of compute power. So cloud is the most obvious place to do that in. But then once you've built those models, those predictors, for example, they can be deployed at the edge and also on mobile devices. So Apple recently, for example, has uh, released uh, you know, uh, Core ML and uh, one of our architects um, uh, you know, uh, we both know, mm-hmm. uh, who shall we remain nameless, <laughs> <laughs> who's left, he's left Australia for the US, right. um, has also put a blog post out on actually how to do, you know, uh, MXNet with Core ML um, on iOS devices. So, so basically, you know, Gluon is essentially an abstraction layer. We talk about abstraction layers like DAX for Dynamic. It's an abstraction layer uh, to help developers build, you know, those machine learning models using very simple Python APIs and a whole range of pre-built, you know, optimized neural network components. When you start to build those applications, and many developers now are making a transit from just being a developer building web apps or maybe being a full-stack developer or being a DevOps engineer to now becoming AI developers. And I think that's going to be the next uh, career path for many people out there in the industry. Uh, so this um, Gluon library uh, essentially is going to help you define your models and your algorithms, you know, um, because in the past, when you actually used to build a lot of the AI stuff, even in Python, there was a lot of specific, you know, uh, ways of defining and declaring your your your, your neural nets, uh, and these were generally not very consistent. So Gluon actually tries to simplify that model, so you can actually change uh, which of the engines you're using. So, for example, you know the Apache MXNet. Um, you know, framework as well as the Microsoft Cognitive Toolkit or CNTK, it's often referred to. Um, those two platforms now can be used, well, actually, uh, used via the Gluon pl- uh, abstraction uh, to make your development a lot easier. So it basically simplifies uh, the learning cycle, simplifies um, how you abstract your AI networks, uh, gives you more flexibility around those models. Uh, it helps to uh, simplify, you know, how you work your dynamic graphs when you actually create those uh, training nets. Uh, and obviously, with performance, once to finally deploy them out to actual real-world examples. So uh, go check out um, uh, in a Gluon API uh, on GitHub. Uh, at the moment, Apache MXNet is supported, and the next release of the Microsoft Cognitive Toolkit, uh, which is very much upcoming, uh, will also support it. So now we're seeing convergence, which is the first sign of you know, more and more maturity around AI where you know, multiple vendors in our company are saying, you know what, we need to make it easier for everybody else. Let's start standardizing. Yeah, I'd really like to see how we are catering uh, for the different uh, uh, sort of artificial intelligence uh, experts uh, in the field in terms of uh, what I would class as when you talk about AI or specifically around things like deep learning. um, Mm -hmm. If you look at it like a a layered approach, at the top layer you have these managed services that we've come out with uh, like uh, Amazon Reckon and Recognition Mm -hmm. and Amazon Lex and Amazon Polly, Polly. which really allows customers to take advantage of artificial intelligence Mm -hmm. uh, but they don't have to have much skills or experience experience in this field. It's simply API calls for these services to do a specific task. 
But then you have uh, things like the Amazon Machine Learning mm-hmm. uh, service, uh, which does require a little bit more of uh, uh, experience in yeah. this space. But uh, you know, customers customers can really focus on the modeling that they want to to use uh, and leverage the Amazon Machine Learning service. And then at that bottom layer, where you have uh, folks that work in that artificial intelligence industry and deep learning, that now have uh, options to leverage things like uh, the MXNet and now this Gluon, yeah. uh, like you mentioned uh, too. So really being able to support uh, across a variety of, uh, of levels in the artificial intelligence field. Yeah, and like I said, it's a very, very exciting. It's the next gold rush, you know, getting gold out of your data, out of your you know, data lakes. Yep. Um, and, you know, when I look at Gluon, you know, it's almost like a router for different engines. Yep. Mm-hmm. And speaking of routers, <laughs> <laughs> almost like load balances. Right. <laughs> you know, we've got some cool announcements. And I, and I know you love your networks, Dean. You know, I do. You, 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 are, you are very passionate. You can make, you know, a uh, you know, VPCP ring. <laughs> So interesting to yeah. almost anyone. And you are well known for running your uh, level 400 uh, ninja sessions in most of our Apex summits. I am, and so it generally includes something about load balancing. You <laughs> generally do, which is why I'm sort of kind of alluding towards this because uh, this is a pretty cool announcement around ELBs and SNI. Yeah, absolutely. And and uh, again, you know, one of those things uh, that really excites me is, is how we're still uh, innovating for our customers in areas where you know it is fairly fundamental it's been a, a technologies that yeah. have been around for quite some time when you talk about networking and compute and storage uh, might not be the most sexiest stuff to some people it's not ai right <laughs> it's not ai exactly uh, but you know we still uh, still innovating on these types mm. of uh, uh, components uh, in the last episode we spoke about how we now have three options for load balancing services with uh, aws with the classic load balancer the tried and true uh, service that a lot of our customers use today and still love and still loved absolutely uh, the application uh, load balancer which really allows that layer 7 based uh, uh, load balancing and then the introduction of our new service the network load balancer which mm. is really designed for uh, those platforms which do experience uh, sudden spikes in traffic and large demand uh, to the actual app- web applications yeah. Uh, and so we've actually now uh, announced a special feature for one of those uh, load balancers. The application load balancer now supports multiple SSL certificates um, uh, using s- uh, server name indication or SNI. So what does that actually mean? Yeah, yeah. so I thought you were going to ask that. Oh, of course. <laughs> you, you are my oracle of network wisdom, <laughs> right, Dean. Right. So if you think about uh, you know SSL and uh, uh, SSL termination, mm-hmm. Um, so when a, re- a secure request comes in from a, a, a user or a client uh, to the load balancer, uh, generally the, uh, the the host or the, the the server that it wants to connect to is actually in the encrypted message right. um, uh, when it when it connects. So the problem is that um, on the SSL termination endpoint, in this case the application load balancer, you could only have one certificate because the load balancer actually would not know uh, what uh, what is the server or the host that the client wants to connect sure. to until it actually decrypts uh, the message um, and so there's actually a, a, a new uh, feature in the um, in the HTTP protocol uh, that well, sorry it's not really new it's actually been around for a while um, where the host that the client wants to connect to is actually uh, provided as metadata in the actual connection to the SSL te- right. uh, endpoint and it's not actually encrypted yes um, and so what that actually means is with the new SNI uh, support in uh, the application load balancer is you can now have multiple certificates 
in the uh, application load balancer. And depending on what the SNI uh, reference is, reference that's provided in the connection request from the client, the application load balancer will actually know what certificate to use mm -hmm. to then negotiate the encrypted uh, connection between clients and the actual load balancer. So you can now host those multiple secure HTTPS applications, each with its own SSL certificate behind that one load balancer. So prior to this, customers would actually have to deploy multiple uh, uh, load balancers to actually support their different uh, certificates. Or they could use a SAN certificate. Or they could use yeah. a SAN certificate. Or uh, we even had customers doing things like use wildcard yes. uh, certificates as well. And one of the problems with the wildcard certificates is it does introduce potential security risks because it does give a lot more vis visibility to clients that are connecting to the uh, to the secure website what other possible uh, uh, hosts uh, uh, can be connected to because they're all actually specified in the, uh, in the certificate. Similarly with SAN certificates as well. Yes, because you can figure out what's actually behind yeah, exactly. that endpoint. So exactly. sensitive, they're awesome because they can have different domain types yep. of, of all sorts of things, but they're also disclosed. And actually, I had a customer who came to, to me, albeit a little while ago, some time ago now, who wanted to actually host 500 different websites right. behind one ELB. Okay. Because uh, <laughs> they were doing lots of uh, SaaS work and doing lots of multi-tenancy work. And I kind of went, is that really the best model to have a SAN certificate? So I had to do uh, lots of deep dives into you know, how we could actually do that. And we right. certainly could. Mm -hmm. uh, they actually eventually figured that was probably not the best way to do multi-tenancy sure. on a single instance behind a yeah, <laughs> an ELB. Yeah, absolutely. And you need to really establish that balance between ease of management and security, right? And uh, you know, for us, of course, security is our top priority. Yes. And you know, that's why we introduced uh, features and services such as this. But uh, one of the other cool things with uh, this release is it also includes another feature called the uh, Smart Certificate Selection Algorithm. Oh yeah. And so what that basically means is if the host name indicated by the client matches multiple certificates. Which can happen. Which can absolutely mm. happen. The load balancer does, uh, well, it determines the best certificate to use based on multiple factors, including things like the capabilities of the client that's actually connecting as well. Yes, that's very important because there have been known vulnerabilities mm -hmm. in some of the implementations uh, once you do switch in and out of different um, levels of ciphers that are actually being used in the actual protocol. And Dean, how many certificates can we go to now? I mean, we've had one. How many can we have today? So, so today uh, you can associate up to 25 certificates with a load balancer in addition to a default certificate per listener. Uh, and one other thing to actually uh, uh, mention is that this SNI uh, support is integrated with our AWS certificate management service. Mm -hmm. So this is essentially a service which allows our customers to uh, create, manage, and deploy uh, their own uh, certificates yeah. to various services like the application load balancer. It also integrates with the AWS identity and access uh, management service for certificate management. Wow, very cool. And by the way, if you haven't used the AWS certificate manager, go ahead and use it. It is so simple. It takes all the hard, heavy, you know, undifferent heavy lifting that you would have had to do yourself uh, to actually deploy, manage, and cycle through certificates. Yeah, especially when it comes to also uh, moving certificates around. Yeah. Uh, you know, sometimes you have to copy it to different servers and you, know, you might want to make sure you take the right uh, secure steps to actually do that. It's seamless now through the, the ACM. Yes, it, it rocks. Um, so the other thing that's also interesting, this, this, this is again deep in the plumbing, uh, but many of our customers here in Australia, as an example, I've had lots of conversations around this, is around you know running you know secure information in the cloud or you know things like medical records, for instance. Um, and they often talk about you know we have to comply with certain level of you know uh, of segregation and separation. Uh, and obviously that often comes down to the discussion around the VPC. 
Um, what have we done here, Dean? Because uh, there's some interesting stuff around being able to flip the uh, the way that the VPC is actually being, you know, um, you know, deployed. Yeah. So if if you have a look at how you can actually deploy or uh, create a VPC, mm -hmm. it's, it's either in what we call dedicated. Uh, mode yep. or in default mode. Uh -huh. What's what the difference? What's yeah. The difference? So yeah. what we mean when we say dedicated mode is uh, essentially the VPC will be cr created um, across a set of dedicated hosts mm -hmm. that can be used exclusively by a customer. And so essentially when a customer deploys an EC2 instance uh, or a service that uses EC2 um, to that uh, VPC, mm -hmm. uh, those uh, EC2 instances will actually be running uh, on those hosts and will not be shared, uh, and those hosts will not be shared by other customers. So as basically, well. it's, like a, it's like a digital ring fence around that infrastructure on AWS. Yeah, exactly. Where nobody else would be, you know, packets would not be flying. That's right. Way. I mean, even from a physical perspective, mm -hmm. right? So the the, the, EC, the EC2 instances are, 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 are running on those hosts that are only available to a Just single you. customer. Yeah, a right. single customer. Whereas when you have default, uh, which as the name suggests is the default, mm -hmm. um, it basically means that the v, when the customer deploys instances to that VPC, those instances could be running on physical hosts that are being used by other customers as well. Now, of course, we still have uh, certain security controls and restrictions to prevent uh, unauthorized uh, access between those EC2 instances. But we do have certain uh, regulations from mm -hmm. certain authorities that do require certain workloads, especially when it comes to sensitive content, um, uh, to to be running on uh, on, on uh, uh, infrastructure that is the exclusive use of a single, uh, single user. Uh, but what we've actually introduced is a very easy way for customers to move from a dedicated VPC configuration to a default VPC configuration. Uh, basically what we've done is uh, uh, through a click of a button, uh, customers can actually migrate uh, migrate across. Now, why would they want to want to do this? Uh, well, previously, if customers wanted to move to a default uh, VPC, they would either have to recreate a new VPC, That's right. do a migration of the EC2 instance through us uh, taking a snapshot and then moving it across and then launching launching it again. Mm -hmm. um, but now, through a single click of a button, uh, that VPC will then uh, move across to a default tenancy arrangement. Awesome. Um, one of the use cases is that uh, as of uh, May uh, 2017, customers who wanted to run uh, protected health information or PHI workloads actually no longer need to run their workloads on dedicated instances or dedicated hosts. Awesome. And so what that basically means is customers who are running in that configuration today can use this feature to actually move across to a default uh, configuration for their VPC, uh, and it effectively means they can reduce their costs uh, for running that environment. Awesome. Um, we always talk about um, uh, making sure that we, we we that our customers are only paying for what they need. That's right. Yep. Not for what they use. Right? Not for what they use. They can use lots of things, but yes. they probably don't need everything. Exactly right. So we actually got some interesting announcements around the marketplace, and predominantly that's around being able to launch multiple Amazon machine images uh, from the marketplace. In the past, you could. Uh, generally just get the one uh, that Amazon machine image and launch that. But we've, we've more and more customers asking for far more complex solutions, uh, almost like a SaaS offering. Uh, I want to buy it from the marketplace. Um, we've now 
being able to announce that you can do that. We've got a couple of vendors who are already doing this. So the, uh, the likes of uh, Couchbase and uh, Access Data have already made available new solutions in the AWS Marketplace, which actually allow you to deploy really sophisticated offerings via the Marketplace. And uh, you may recall, we've mentioned CloudFormation support uh, being added to the Marketplace. So now uh, there's a new work, uh, a new workflow added into the Marketplace. So if you happen to be launching a more complicated stack, uh, from one of the marketplace merchants, uh, it will actually spin up a whole bunch of things behind the scenes for you based upon how they've configured their marketplace offerings uh, and be able to deploy it via CloudFormation templates to actually simplify the deployment, but also accelerate time to value by being able to get access to those appliances. Um, and you now get multiple appliances. So the main message here is, um, you can buy multiple appliances essentially in one click. Uh, and if you happen to be a software vendor wishing to uh, be able to deploy multi you know, Amazon machine image solutions in the marketplace, please go check out the AWS Marketplace Seller Management Portal uh, to find out more. Wow, and I'm really seeing a pattern here where we're making it a lot easier for customers not to simply deploy individual resources, mm -hmm. but really deploy full solutions through the click of a button, leveraging uh, orchestration and management tools like CloudFormation, you know, leverage, leveraging things like this uh, new feature in the AWS marketplace of being able to select and subscribe to multiple AMIs yeah. at one time, using things like the Quick Start uh, Guide to, to really allow our customers to get started very quickly, get that hands-on, and even go one step further and deploy these type of environments to a production environment so they can focus on innovating in their own business rather than the actual infrastructure required to actually deploy this platform. Yeah, look, I've had a, a real customer story. Um, they actually went to the marketplace to launch um, a particular product, uh, which was 30% cheaper than what they were getting from the vendor directly. Directly, right. So, you know, you, you can really game uh, game lots of things in your organization in the market by yep. going to the marketplace. And uh, yeah, great, great call out there. You know, just because you launch it from the marketplace doesn't mean it's for dev test. Yep. And just to learn, you, we have customers using real marketplace appliances in production infrastructure every single day. Absolutely. Yep. Right. Well, look, guys, we have absolutely stretched our friendship. We are well and truly. This is going to be the longest show ever. <laughs> so much to talk about, Dr. There is. And, and, and we had great to talk with you. Yes, yes. We had to color a whole bunch of other announcements. Yeah. We'll have to do another episode very soon. We will. So, guys, look, uh, Dean, any final parting thoughts about things that we should be thinking about in the next few uh, few weeks, a few months? Um, I think there is something, Dr. Dean. What could that be? Yeah, What's this wonder. time of year? <laughs> could this be coming? reInvent? I think it is Season. reInvent. Yes, uh, <laughs> of course, our uh, annual uh, customer co conference, reInvent, is coming up it's just around the corner. Uh, so we have reInvent in Las Vegas once again uh, this year, uh, November 27th to the 1st of December. Mm -hmm. uh, obviously, a lot of exciting news and announcements to be coming out of uh, that uh, that event. Absolutely. Um, very happy that I'm going to be there uh, on the ground uh, at the time and being able to uh, network with our customers and our partners uh, attending that, uh, that, that event. Uh, for those of you who uh, unfortunately weren't able to make the event, um, we are actually going to be live streaming uh, the keynotes. So uh, please uh, check out our, pay, our webpage on reInvent and it'll provide all the details required uh, to access that, uh, that live stream. Yeah, more closer to the actual event. So guys, thanks for joining us. Dean, always a pleasure working by your side. Thanks again for having me, Dr. Pete. I look forward to the next one. Absolutely, guys. Thanks for joining us, and we'll catch you in the next episode. Bye for now. Bye-bye. Signing off. We really hope you enjoyed this episode. If you liked it, tell your friends. 
tell your colleagues, and tune in again to learn about AWS Cloud. Please subscribe to AWS Tech Chat by visiting www.awstechchat.com.